No sermon slides this morning, but the scriptures will be on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, open to Ezra chapter, let's see, 9. Ezra chapter 9. Last week, we saw how God sovereignly, supernaturally, miraculously, after the 70 years of exile, brought the remnant the faithful remnant, back to the land by moving in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus, which the prophets had predicted 150 years earlier that a man named Cyrus, a king named Cyrus, would send the exiles back to the land. We'll look this Sunday at what happened once they got into the land. But in order to set the stage and to tie the lesson to to Noah's Ark, I wanted to call our attention back to the the passage I read to begin our worship. You don't need to turn there. It was from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice list of behaviors that show us man's wickedness. Focus is on the heart of man. That the intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It is in the heart, biblically, where worship begins and where False worship begins. Where true worship begins, where false worship begins. Long before you came to church today, you were worshiping. We are made to worship. We are incurable worshipers. We have to worship. It is a necessity. It's our nature to worship. The question is, whom or what will we worship? It's not that the world's divided into worshipers and non-worshipers. The world's divided into worshipers of the one true God and all other worshipers. And even as Christians, redeemed by Christ, sanctified by His blood, filled with the Holy Spirit, because we have our residual sin nature this side of heaven, we will find ourselves straying from true worship. And so where we're going with the message is eventually how do you get back to true worship once you've strayed? So be on the lookout for that by the time we get to the end of the sermon. But the title being that worship starts before Sunday. Worship starts before Sunday. Or we could say Sunday being the first day of the week, really biblically, that worship happens long after Sunday. After you leave this place, you will continue worshiping. Again, the question is, what or whom will you worship? Even the unbelieving world, the materialists, have recognized that all humanity worships. They think it's a hangover from evolutionary um, forces that Primitive man need to worship some kind of God because he couldn't explain how everything got here. 
and that somehow worshiping this God helped us cope with life, making us more fit for survival and passing our genes on to the next generation, right? Darwinian evolution. And so they would say it's just a hangover from primitive man. And since they now know that there isn't a God and that we have other ways to cope with with life, they will not worship. They don't need to worship anymore. But believe you me, they are worshiping. They are always worshiping. The Bible reveals that the heart is made to worship. So if they're not worshiping the true God, then they're either worshiping created things. And of course, we've been saying that biblically, since everything else that is worshiped besides God is not God, can't be God, can't function as a God, can't create out of nothing, can't intelligently order the universe, can't redeem, can't judge, then all of these things must just be thoughts that we have conjured up in our own minds and in our own hearts. And so when we talk about the worship of false gods, since these gods really don't exist, it's really us who's behind the false gods. We're animating these gods. We're putting words in their mouth. We're creating a God on our own image who tells us what we want to hear. All the things that our, our flesh desires, we, we can make this God speak back to us, as it were, and justify all the things that we want, all the things we think about ourselves, justify the exalted, lofty position we've each given ourselves in our sinfulness. And so for this reason, this is why God judged the whole planet with a flood. But it's not the first time God judged humanity. He told Adam and Eve from the beginning that If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Death is judgment. Death is separation. The judgment, the penalty, is more than just losing your physical life. It's the separation of that fellowship with God. That is the worst thing that can happen to you. Broken fellowship with the God of the universe, the source of all life, happiness, satisfaction, and joy. That's that's the ultimate punishment. Yes, Adam and Eve died physically hundreds of years later. But first, there was a death of fellowship with God. When they die physically, and when you and I die physically, our souls are separated from our body. So that's a second separation. And then the Bible talks about a final death. If we are not reconciled back to God by His grace, And on this side of the cross, that reconciliation only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. If we're not reconciled to God, then there's a final death, an eternal separation from God. Not in the sense that we will ever be completely uh, away from the presence of God. The Bible says God is omnipresent. David said, where can I go where you are not? If I go down to Sheol, you're there. It's not that... Those who continue to rebel against God all the way to the end get to escape God's presence. Hardly. That's exactly what they thought they wanted. 
It's just that they'll be in his presence and only experience his judgment and his wrath and will not experience the love and acceptance that we get to have through faith in Christ. The love that we get a taste of now, just the appetizer. And as amazing as God's love is here, wait till you get to heaven. And the shroud of sin isn't clouding that experience anymore. It's what the world is missing out on. So as we've been going through the Bible, we've seen some great themes emerging. Certainly we talked about the sovereignty of God last week, but hand in hand with the sovereignty is His holiness. We sang this morning, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you. We're not holy in and of ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy. And if holiness is what brings us into perfect fellowship with God, then holiness is what we should crave. We, we long to have that perfect fellowship with God. And so God's sovereignty and His holiness are the immediate themes of the Bible. Funny, in, in our fallenness, or we call our man-centeredness, we go to the Bible we immediately want to look for what it has to say about us. But where does the Bible start? In the beginning, God. That ought to give us a clue. It's not a book about us. It's a book about God. By the time it gets to us, the next great theme of the Bible is that we're created to worship God, but we blew it. We don't worship Him rightly. And so this great theme of man's sinfulness dominates the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to the last two chapters of Revelation. You get no sin in Genesis 1 and 2 and no sin in the last two chapters of Revelation. But everything in between, man in his fallenness, which leads to this fourth great theme of the Bible, redemption. And really it's the climax of the Bible, God's redemptive act on the cross specifically, the, the high point of the entire story. You know, we, we used to mark our calendar before Christ came and after he came. And the world's trying to even blot that out. They have the terminology BCE, before the common era. But BCE lands right when Jesus arrived in his birth. So they're not fooling anyone. And there was nothing common about Jesus coming. In fact, it was uniquely uncommon. God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. During the teaching time, uh, every year I take the 10, 11, 12-year-olds specifically. They are ready to hear Deep teaching. The eight, nine-year-olds also got really good teaching. In fact, all the kids got great teaching. But we understand as they get older, they're ready to handle more and more. Uh, maybe out of all the feedback I've heard from this week, the one that put a smile on my face more than anything else was uh, like a 10-year-old 10, 10 from another church who told his parents, they said, how did you like VBS and he said, I really liked it. I love the teaching time. Dad, they didn't treat us like kids. 
They didn't treat us like kids. Oh, we had fun. And I always pass out dum-dums and smarties every year as kind of a litmus test of do you consider yourself wise or, or foolish in the eyes of the Lord? And uh, I tease them and say, if you, if you answer a question and get it wrong, you're going to get a dum-dum. And you see their faces are kind of shocked, like, can he do that? That's so not PC. And I say, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. It's your choice, dum-dum or smarty. And I always say, remember, if you take smarties, you can share with your friends. But a dum-dum, it's kind of gross to share with your friends. And if we're going to share with our friends, let's share smarties. Let's share the truth. Let's share that which God calls wise. And in spite of that little pep talk, nine out of ten kids take a dum-dum. Which, what a great illustration of the human heart there, right? The truth's right there in front of you, smarties for all, and they want a dum-dum. I think because they don't have to share. I don't want to be cynical, but come on. If we're listening to the Bible, we understand the condition of the human heart. You know, you see the wheels turning. Wow, if I pick a smarty, they're so small, and yeah, I could hand them out to 20 of my friends, but that leaves me with one little smarty. I'll take the dum-dum. We, we taught him to compare worldviews. And we said, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. And, it, and the, the world says, in the beginning was a dot of matter and energy. How do they know? We just know. Well, how do we know? Because the Bible tells me so. God reveals himself to us in his, in his word. And this dot exploded and then organized itself into complex molecules and eventually complex organisms. You see the kids kind of, who's the dum-dum now? <laughs> I said, what kind of questions do you have about this worldview? The kids ask questions like, well, how did the dot get there? Great question. The world doesn't have an answer for that. Run along, kid. Nothing to see here. Stop asking stupid questions. It just was there. Well, what else do you have? And the kids say, why did it explode? Like if it was just sitting there, why did it explode? Great question. They can't answer that one either. I think Stephen Hawking said it had to do with gravity. So I guess gravity's his God. It's a really poor God. All I know about gravity is, yeah, it holds me here on the earth, but when I fall... It hurts, but that's his God. And then they, what else do you want to know about the dot exploding? And they say, don't explosions make chaos and disorder? Well, yeah, but not in this case. The non-intelligent matter and energy decided to intelligently reorganize itself into everything you see. And so they know, they know when the wool's being pulled over their eyes. But I guess when you get older and you're not foolish like a child anymore, it all makes sense. At least the smart people with all the degrees after their names tell us so, and they're holding out the carrot we want, you know, the diploma, the decree, the praises of man. 
but I'm so glad to have the opportunity to teach the kids while they're still sponges and they're, they're soaking it up. And I say, look, whatever happens when you leave and get older, no matter what you learn, you have to come back to these questions. Either the Bible has the correct answers or man just comes up with the answers on his own. The Bible tells us that ever since man tried to come up with the answers on his own, Adam and Eve, right? We'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know God said we die, but I don't think we'll die. I think we'll live. I think we'll be smarter, wiser, we'll be like God. And then we won't have to listen to God and ask him for the answers. We can justify the way that we want to live. And the human race plunged into sin. And and death hit them, as I said, in the form of broken fellowship with God. Broken fellowship with God. But God made a way back. They tried in their own way to come back. They, they hid. They blamed one another. God, that woman you gave me. The woman said that it was the serpent which, which you created. But they needed their sins covered. And God sacrificed an animal. The, the first animal death. Sacrificed an animal, made clothes, made coverings for Adam and Eve to literally cover their nakedness and their shame. But theologically, that death, that substitute covered their sin. And God instituted a form of formal worship that we still acknowledge today. That a substitutionary death needs to happen to cover sin. If the wages of sin is death, then someone must die in our place or something must die in our place. Cain and Abel were supposed to bring a sacrificial offering. Abel's was accepted by God. Cain's was rejected. Even today, now that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we have that as an element of our worship. It reminds us of our fallenness and our need for a savior and our need for a substitute. When Noah got off the boat with his family, the first thing they did was build an altar, sacrifice animals to God. Interestingly, the same animals that they nurtured and took care of for almost a year on the ark, they immediately take those animals when they get off. The ones set aside for for worship sacrificing them to God. And God puts a rainbow in the sky to remind them of their fallenness, that he brought judgment in the form of rain. That rainbow to remind them of God's judgment, but also of his mercy. And he says, I'll make covenant with you, and I will never judge the entire earth again by flood. I will never judge the entire earth again by flood and puts this thing in the sky that only God could come up with colors in the sky. And sadly and ironically, the world has now taken that symbol of God's judgment and mercy and used it in all other kinds of ways, always to kind of represent that. Look how wonderful it is to put all kinds of worldviews together. 
The different colors of the rainbow to the world represent different worldviews, different ways of living, different kinds of morality. And they say, see how beautiful they all are next to each other? And it's sad and yet ironic that the world would take the symbol God chose to be a reminder of his judgment for doing exactly that thing. For redefining what God had already defined. And saying, oh, there's a better way. There's a happier way. There's a more beautiful way. And taking a a symbol of God's judgment and his mercy and turning it into their own private symbol of, "We'll, we'll do things the way we like to do them. As we get into the the book of Ezra, we are reminded that Israel was punished for exactly this kind of thinking. They had adopted all the philosophies and all the false worship of the surrounding nations when they were supposed to be kept pure and holy and worship God and God alone. And God said, look, if, if that's what you want to do, you want to worship those gods, you want to be in slavery to those gods, I'll send you away and you can live amongst the pagan people in exile. But because he's a faithful God, a God of mercy, 70 years later, I'll bring you back. And so the book of Ezra chronicles their return. And they're supposed to return to pure worship. But as the sermon title indicates, that worship is going on long before they land in Israel, long before they rebuild the temple. It's not like once the temple's rebuilt, then worship starts up again. Worship's going on in the heart at all times and in all places. Don't turn there, but I think Paul lays out for us a great definition of true worship. I, I, I took the VBS kids here. You guys are so familiar with Romans 1. But we're talking about the flood being the wrath of God and and this concept of the wrath of God, his righteous anger. Why is God angry? What is he so angry about? And they know to say sin, but they just don't really understand fully what sin is. And so we use this as our definition for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is why the wrath of God is being poured out on all of us unless we're reconciled to him by his own means and by his own providential means of grace. For us as New Testament believers, that's faith in Jesus Christ. For Noah, it was the ark. Get on this ark of wood Trusting God that he will bring judgment, but he provides the only way of escape. It's a litmus test. Do you worship yourself or do you worship God? Well, how can I worship this God who says he's going to flood the whole place when they'd never seen a flood before? You know, the kids are singing the song and there's a part of the song where people said, Noah, you're a fool. This isn't a swimming pool. Uh, You're building this boat for decades upon decades on dry land. Think of all the scoffers and mockers. And then the rain started. 
And the scoffers and mockers still wouldn't get on because of the hardness of their heart, because of their stubbornness. For no other way of escape to demonstrate that you indeed trust God was to get on the boat. For us, it's to get on the wooden cross. And the ark was plenty big enough for more than just eight people to get on board. In fact, it was five of these worship centers long and two and a half worship centers tall. But just about exactly the the width of the worship center. And as modern day engineers have discovered, the dimensions of the ark are the perfect dimensions for a floating barge to keep it from capsizing, to keep it stable inside so there is as less rocking back and forth as possible, and uh, volume-wise to hold the most amount of cargo. In fact, most cargo ships today are built according to similar dimensions, a a five-to-one ratio. So long before man figured it out, God already knew the best way to build a floating zoo. And yet only eight people get on board the ark. And God says in his word in John 3.16 that the new ark, the cross, is big enough to fit whosoever. Whosoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. Lots of whosoever's in this room. I hope and pray that You'll be on the ark with me, like the cross. And we'll be worshiping God rightly together around his throne for all eternity. Theologians often talk about when Israel left Egypt as the first exodus They're returning back to the promised land. And they talk about when the exiles later went to Babylon and came back as the second exodus. And there's there's a lot of similarities going on. In the, the first exodus, they're coming back to the land and they're going to have a place, a home they can call their own where the worship of the true God takes place and they're supposed to clear the land of all the false worshipers and then build a place that will be central for worship where the sacrifices will take place. In the second exodus, the remnant's supposed to return to the very same land. They've got to cross over the Jordan River again, rebuild the temple and keep themselves clean and pure and holy and se- separate. Would you believe that in the second exodus, after everything that's happened out of Israel's sins being so clearly recorded that they were not to intermingle with false worship, with pagan idolatry, when they return to the land, the the remnant immediately begins to marry women from pagan nations. And here's their justification for it. Gee, when we get back to the land, it's not like it's going to be completely empty. And it's not like the people there are going to be like, oh, you guys are back. Here, have your land. We're leaving now. 
And so they did what anyone does back then. They, they, they arrange marriages with the other nations to build alliances. Because it's hard for another nation to attack you when in your tent is his daughter and your grandchildren. The problem with that idea is that, in essence, they're saying the way to be safe is to disobey God. The way to be safe is to do exactly the opposite of what God told us to do. Now, this is the God who's punished us for doing this. He's been faithful to not completely annihilate us. He's bringing us back to the land. He sovereignly and supernaturally moved in the heart of King Cyrus to write the decree to get us back to the land. He moved in Cyrus's heart to write another decree that the other nations were not to bother or molest the Jews as they went back to the land. And he even wrote a decree that there will be tax money to pay for the return to the land and the rebuilding of the temple. So here God has shown himself mighty and sovereign. And man says, yeah, but it might not be safe when we get there. So we're going to do the opposite of what God said to do in order to keep ourselves safe. Can we hand out a bag of dum-dums, right? And when we get to Ezra chapter 9, there's, there's one man here, Ezra, kind of like Noah. Like, like our Moses figure in the first Exodus, leading them back to the land. And he hears this is going on, and he's just flabbergasted. He, he can't believe his eyes. We're supposed to be the true worshipers. Paul says in Romans 1 that man should clearly understand who God is. And yet he neither honors God as God nor gives him thanks. So true worship honors God as God the way he reveals himself. Don't try to change who he is. Don't replace him with another God. Honor God as God. Put your trust in him, obey his laws, fear the Lord, love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All that's wrapped up in honoring God and then give him thanks and praise for what he's done for us. That is is true and proper worship. And so the exiles are returning and they don't honor God for being God. They don't trust that he's going to keep them safe. And then they're complaining and grumbling that they don't that they're not going to be safe and that they don't have the right wife, so they take matters into their own hands. There's this great prayer in Ezra 9. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, that being Ezra, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves From the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Boy, they they went after all kinds of ladies. And remember, it's not just the wives that are in focus here. It's their belief system, their false gods, their false worldviews. I mean, this is... Massive pluralism here. 
For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race was intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Look, it's, it's not just the regular folk. It's the elite, the leaders, the people who should know better, the people who are supposed to be setting the example. They're doing this the most. They're finding the elite, the movers and shakers from the other nations, and they're making alliances. The A-list crowd from Israel hobnobbing with the A-list crowd from the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites. Egyptians and Amorites. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe. That's a, that's a sign of, of um, sign of humiliation before the Lord. That this should not be. And pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. As we look around at what's going on in our own nation, I find myself sitting around appalled. Appalled. But do I, do I sit around appalled when I sin? Or am I just busy looking at everybody else's sin. And certainly there is a proper time and place to be appalled at the sin going on around us. Ezra himself wasn't partaking of this sin, but he was appalled for his people, embarrassed for his people. I mentioned last week that this event in August at Rabobank Arena, where we will gather and pray for our state. We're going to fast and pray and cry out to God that he have mercy. This this beautiful, wonderful state, the fifth largest economy in the world, this state. This state that people look to for leadership. And we're really just leading the way into absurdity and paganism and and immorality. I can't even keep up. The, The laws are coming faster out of the state assembly than I can keep up with. You, you start pulling one weed and 20 other weeds pop up and you realize the problem's the root and until the heart changes, we'll just keep getting more and more rotten fruit. And so it'll be an appropriate time that we cry out corporately as the people of God for the sins of the, the state we live in. But it will also be a proper time in that place for us individually to cry out to the Lord for our personal sins. At the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is even to this day. So he's 
He's going through Israel's history. We have not worshipped you rightly. And we were punished rightly for it. Even to this day. Only a small portion had returned to the land. Still the, the majority of Israel, the remnant still living in exile at this time. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place, like, like a foothold, just, just a little foothold back into Jerusalem, just a small remnant, just a seed where we can rebuild and grow Israel back into the holy, pure, mighty, God-honoring nation she was intended to be. So that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God and to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. He's specifically laying out which sin he's he's embarrassed about, which sin is causing him shame and grief. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. Yes, God told them while they were in exile, seek the peace and prosperity of the nation. But when you return back to Israel, that is to be a, a, a pure land. Yes, as we go out and live in the world, we, we seek as much as we can the peace and, and prosperity of our neighbors. But when we gather as Christians, the teaching is pure. And our living ought to be pure. Certainly, we, we try to live pure and holy lives outside the church as well. But how much more here? If... We don't create a sanctuary here, then why would the world ever want to come to Christ? I know there's this prevailing man-centered thinking that if we're more like the world, the world will like us and want to be around us and maybe even worship our God. But that strategy is not a strategy from God. Oh, it's not getting people's faces. But you unashamedly live for God and according to his ways, even if it brings offense to the world. And we say, I must please my God and not man. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have required, requited us, 
less than our iniquities deserve. What a great line there. You, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve. Here's this man speaking on behalf of a nation that was violently overthrown by foreign invaders. Violently overthrown. Millions probably slaughtered, taken off to captivity, living in bondage and slavery. And here, Ezra says, you know, you haven't punished us as much as our sin deserves. Remember, one of my favorite professors who taught counseling would say, if we want to divide Christians into two categories, there's those who understand that they don't get what they deserve and get far better than they ever deserve. And then there's those who still think their life is worse than they deserve and they're being shortchanged in the blessing department. And so they think life should be coming in way up here and it's only coming in here and then the pity party starts. Those are the people who don't have the joy of the Lord. Their hearts filled with complaining and grumbling. But what did Paul say in Romans 1? It is a hallmark of true worship. That you honor God as God and you give him thanks and praise. We find it shocking when we look at the Old Testament and see complaining and grumbling elevated to one of the chief and worst sins we could commit. Like, really? It can't be that bad. I hope it's not that bad because I kind of do it all day long. If you're complaining and grumbling, you're not giving God thanks and praise. But boy, when you understand that you really deserve God's righteous wrath, and in Christ you not only get His forgiveness, but you are adopted into His family. You co-reign with Christ. Spiritual blessings beyond your imagination are laid up for you in heaven. And most of all, you get fellowship with God. And he calls you friend. Talk about winning the lottery. Those are the people who have the joy of the Lord on their face because they're like, man, I deserve this. I'm getting this in Christ. And you've given us an, an escaped remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? We're going to go back and do the same thing that got us into trouble in the first place. Are we crazy? Are we stupid? No, we just have hearts that are darkened. Paul says in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and their hearts were darkened. And they exchanged the glory of God for the image of corruptible man. They, they put their ideas above God's ideas. Hey, this makes perfect sense. We'll intermarry. We'll have grandchildren. The foreign countries won't want to attack us because we'll all be one happy family. It's not the way it'll work. They'll let us worship our God the way we want to and they'll leave us alone. Right. That's exactly what's going on right now, right? They said, just leave us alone, just, just, just let us do our thing and, and we'll leave you alone. Nope. The world must expunge the true God and all of his laws and every reminder of him away from public view. They really think they're going to erase God. 
the Almighty, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? Doesn't that sound like Noah's flood? He's saying, we deserve for you to just wipe us all off the planet. Now that is a prayer of contrition. And then he says this, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. And as you you keep reading this week, read into chapter 10, they reconcile with, with God and they put a plan together to purify themselves. I just wanted to leave you with, with a couple of steps here if, you, if you're a note taker. The big, the big point this morning was that the worship was happening long before they got to the land. They hadn't even rebuilt the temple yet and they're already, their hearts, their behavior is revealing what's in their heart already. The behavior is revealing what's in the heart already. They still are not a people who love and trust God. Throughout history, humanity, nations, even churches and individuals go through seasons where true worship is lost. And we have to be careful that we don't just jump to reforming behavior. Just reforming the behavior. If you notice in your bulletin, Jennifer and I are going to be teaching the the parenting class in the fall. It's a mandatory class for all those enrolling their kids in Heritage Oak School, but it's open to the rest of the church as well. We're going with with a new curriculum this year. It's been around a long time. Many of you have read Shepherding a Child's Heart. We will also incorporate some of our favorite teachings from Growing Kids God's Way into, into the teaching, but... We really love shepherding a child's heart because he understands how important it is that if the heart doesn't change in your child, then forget about the behavior. We, we say that's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Oh, look how pretty. Yeah, the ship's going down, though. Um, in, in the series, he talks about an apple tree in his yard that produces rotten apples, and he's fertilizes the tree and waters the tree and he just can't get good apples to hang on the tree so he goes out buys a bushel of apples and some fishing line and hangs apples on the tree see now we have a great tree that produces good fruit no the tree's not producing good fruit and so certainly there's a time and a place to reform our behavior but if the heart doesn't change then ultimately we'll never worship correctly. So there's this pattern that you'll see in Ezra 9 and 10, and it's in many other places in the Bible. If you're into the alliterated list, all the words starting with the same letter, I got got it for you today. So first you have to recognize the wrongdoing. Yeah, I know wrongdoing's a W, uh, but it sounds like an R. So, recognize the wrongdoing. First, if you're not sitting under God's word, you'll never be convicted that 
you're doing anything wrong. You will become your own God, your own word of God. You will convince yourself everything you're doing is right. And what is the problem with all these other people? Why can't they get their act together? But you sit under the preaching of the word of God or or sit under the preaching of the word of God in your daily devotions and the Holy Spirit will convict you of your wrongdoing. In Israel's case, it was these unlawful marriages. They didn't even know what they were doing was wrong. They should have known it was wrong. But in their hearts, they had convinced themselves it would be a good thing. Oh, this will be a good thing. And often that's what our fallenness does, is convince us that the very thing God says is wrong and bad would actually be a good thing. It would make me happy. Adam and Eve thought that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be a good thing. We'll be like God. Hey, didn't God say you'd die if you did that? Oh, he must not have meant it. So recognize the wrongdoing. Now, the answer now isn't to just stop it, knock it off. I mean, certainly, if you're, if you're in chronic sin, please stop. Remove yourself from the temptation. But you, you, can't, you can't end your work there. You've, you've created a pattern in, in your heart. You will go right back to doing it. It may not look exactly the same, but if you haven't changed the route, you will go right back to the wrongdoing. So secondly, you have to realize the root. What is at the root of this sin? What is my heart worshiping that's not God? For the Israelites, what were they worshiping? They wanted that peace and security. They didn't trust that God would deliver that peace and security And so they disobeyed God's commands, thinking it would bring them the peace and security they were looking for. So they had trust issues. They had way too small a view of God. They didn't think he was big enough to protect them in the land. Thirdly, then they cry out after confessing that specific sin, cry out, repent, receive forgiveness. You hear Ezra calling on God's grace, on his graciousness. For us as Christians, that always takes us to the cross. Go to, go to the cross, be reminded that we are justified in Christ and that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. Right? First John. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now you're ready to change your behavior? Not quite yet. You have to revise your thinking. When, when you fall into a habitual sin, you will have, without you knowing it, told yourself wrong things over and over and over until that's become truth to you. Hey, marrying these ladies from pagan cultures, this will be a good thing. This will be a good thing. This will be a good thing. And before you know it, it becomes truth to you. And then, boom, the Word of God just smacks you over the head. Wait, God says it's bad. How did I convince myself that this would be good? And so the Bible uses terminology like take every thought captive for Christ or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Replace that wrong thinking with biblical thinking. 
And you have, you have to intentionally, consciously work on that. You created a wrong thinking pathway in your mind. Don't think it's just going to go away overnight. You've got to create a whole new pathway in your mind. Now you're ready to reform your behavior because the root has changed. Again, I'll say this, don't, don't, don't wait till you get through all the steps to stop sinning. When I say reform your behavior, that means replace the behavior with a righteous behavior. Paul calls it putting off and putting on. You've found yourself falling into habitual lying, you need to put on truth. Go back to all the people you lied to and tell them, yeah, I lied, I exaggerated, I wanted to make myself look better to you than I really am, so... I exaggerated my position. I made up that story. That'll humble you. That conversation. And then start speaking truth in love. Paul says, if, if you've stolen, he doesn't just say stop stealing. He says, go work with your own hands and make enough so that you can not only provide for yourself, but give to others generously. That's behavior change. The heart's now changed. I want to honor my God and I want to give him thanks and praise. That's how behavior changes. Now you're ready to resume worship. Now you're ready to re resume worship because the heart has changed. Merely changing behavior is not the goal. Israel had a group of men who were... hell-bent on changing the behavior of their nation. They were called Pharisees. They became the behavior police. And Jesus said to them, Woe to you hypocrites! You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. At VBS, we had, we had some rules for the kids to follow to keep them safe. Rules are appropriate. They keep us safe. But during the teaching time, the message wasn't about rules. It was about man's heart that strays from true worship. And we told them how God has provided a way of escape for Noah, the ark, for us, the cross of Christ. Surely being restored back to God in a right relationship with Him will mean reformed behavior and even regular church attendance. I do expect to see you all back here next Sunday. Corporate worship is important to God. He, he commands it. But it's not meant for you only to worship God one hour on Sunday and then worship yourself the rest of the week and then come back next Sunday and worship God for an hour because if you haven't been worshiping him all week, what makes you think your worship Sunday morning is going to be pleasing to him? You know, when we call on the Lord in Christ to change our hearts and give us a heart of true worship, now we have a heart that honors God and is ready to give him thanks and praise, not just on Sunday, but all the week long. Father God, thank you indeed for the cross, our way of escape from your righteous wrath. Forgive us for replacing your truth, suppressing it with our own truth. 
Forgive us for replacing you with, with false gods. Show us what's at the root of our false worship. Change our hearts through the power of the gospel. And show us how to replace that behavior with acts and deeds of righteousness. We want to glorify you, God. We want to be close to you. We want to be in your presence. We don't want that separation. And Thank you that when our sin does separate, you've made a way to bring us back. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.